The local church is the queen of battle. I have read the histories of different parachurch ministries and often they got started because they didn't think the church was doing the job. Well, there's a lot of churches not doing the job, but that's not a way, that's not a reason to go away from the church. And we said last week very strongly, parachurch ministries can be a great blessing if they see it as their goal to reach people and then plant them in a Bible teaching local church because the church is the queen of battle in this holy war that we are enlisted in. Our captain places his most precious churches in the darkest and most dangerous places to be the light of salvation. Matthew 16, 18, Peter had answered that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replies to him, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. A church that is faithful to God's word, a church that is loving one another, is a church that God uses. And while Jesus has promised to never leave us or forsake us in the battle, he's also given us the personal responsibility to guard our fellowship. Paul was getting ready to go down to Jerusalem. He was going to be arrested there. So Agabus the prophet came and he took Paul's belt and he prophesied. God had told him to warn them and to warn Paul. Whoever owns this belt, when he gets to Jerusalem, is going to be bound. And so the church, because they loved their pastor, they prayed, oh, Paul, don't go, don't go. He said, no, no, no. It's just a warning for you to be praying for me, and I'll be ready, but I need to go. So Paul went knowing full well everything that was going to happen to him. But when he was leaving, Acts 20, 28, he gave him this last message. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God with the purchase with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. Remember that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul gave the personal responsibility again to believers. He said, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So how do we do that? How can we be that effective church that God intended us to be? When we look at the book of Titus, we see in Titus chapter 1, the biblical responsibility of leadership. You don't skimp on the qualifications for leadership because they're the ones that have to stand and lead and they're the first responsibility for protecting the flock. They have to be able to know the word of God and teach the word of God and refute those who are false teachers. In Titus chapter two, we see the biblical responsibility to one another. How we're to be kind how do we were to be forgiving and honor one another and how we ourselves, all of us, are fulfilling our own roles that we might be an encouragement to those around that are watching those younger believers. In Titus chapter 3, the first eight verses, we see our biblical responsibility to government, to submit to government. And unless the government is telling us something that is contrary not to the Constitution that we love, 
but contrary to the word of God, then we disobey and we take the consequences. As Peter said, whether it be good or not for you, but we're going to serve the Lord. Because they told him not to preach anymore. He said, no, no, we're going to preach. You can beat us, you can kill us, but we're going to be obedient to the word of God. But in those other areas, we're to be submissive to government because God has placed those governments there on purpose. In Romans 13, we looked at that last week. That good government is not a terror to evil works or to good works, but to evil works. And they bear not the sword in vain. And of all people, Christians ought to be the ones that are, demonstrate what it is to be a good citizen. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul puts the responsibility of first-line church discipline and restoration at the feet of each believer. We request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligent labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. Best way to demonstrate and be an encouragement to your pastor and your elders is to love one another, to forgive one another, to live in peace with one another. Then he says, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. It's not your responsibility when somebody starts to get out of step. That's what we're talking about, using military language. If you're in the army like I was or some service, one of the first things they taught you to do was to march to take orders and to march and step. And they could tell right away if some guy didn't know their left from their right and they would get out because everybody else would be marching together and that one head would be popping up, right? And so they take time to chew everybody out and get you marching correctly. And so in the church, the first people that are going to see somebody getting out of step, beginning to complain and gossip and be unruly and discouraged it's not the pastor or the deacons. It's not the elders. It's going to be you next to your friend. And you have the opportunity to say, hey, get back in line. We've seen that happen before. Somebody gets out of sorts. They start talking, and they're good Christian friends. They say, hey, hey, that's a bad attitude there. So much better, isn't it, that your friend says, you may not like it at the time, but you're so thankful it didn't have to go before the elder board, right? No, you deal with it as friends, As face answers the face, so that a man answers to the face of his friend. As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. That's true Christian love, and we're willing to confront on that level. A shepherd's responsibility is to feed, lead, and protect. Remember David when he came back from Germany uh, the first time, and he was our worship leader and assistant pastor. He's getting ready to leave after being involved in ministry, going ready to go be a pastor. And he said, Dad, I don't know how you do everything. I said, David, I don't do everything. You see a shepherd out there, he's not cramming grass down sheep's mouth, right? He's just making sure they have good pasture and good water, and he's watching for wolves. Watching for wolves. Feed Lead and protect. 
Now, there are some people that would be naive and say, oh, well, we're just all in this together. But God has gifted some in the church, not just pastors, but he's gifted some of you with that gift of prophecy, and that gift of prophecy is a call to truth. And you hear something, your ears perk up and say, hold it, hold it, that's not truth. How do you know? Because you know the truth. Now, remember John and James, the, the sons of thunder, they saw some people that weren't from their group preaching, and they said, Lord, should we call on fire? And he said, no, 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 no. Not against us, they're for us. But at the same time, we need to be sensitive. And I am your pastor because I've been through, I have some scars. David, my son, again, is just learning that you let a factious person go, it won't end well. You think, well, that'll fix itself. And we can be very patient with people. No, no. When you find a false teacher, you find a factious person, you go as quickly as you can to confront it and deal with it. I've been there. Well, you know, I think it's going to fix itself. And then you rip a hole in the church. Because wolves never leave alone. You say, well, you know, if I confront them, they might leave. Well, better they leave than 25 other people with them. Because when a wolf leads them out, he doesn't lead them out for their good, does he? He leads them out for his good. Well, Pastor Garrett used to say, you know the difference how you can tell the difference between a sheep and a wolf? Because sometimes a wolf comes in and he's got sheep's clothing on. He knows how to talk. He said, by what they eat. Wolves eat sheep. They're always looking to build a little kingdom for themselves, not build the Lord's kingdom. Somebody said ministry would be easy except for the people. Right. But you know what? That's where the joy is. In seeing people who are in darkness come to light and see them grow and have Christian families, that's the great joy. Some have said to me, Paul, you know, they've known me through a lot of my years. Oh, you've been through a lot. I don't think of that. Oh, I can, you remind me, I can remember cases, but that's not what my mind stays on. My mind is on the joy of what God is doing in this precious flock. So the fact is, there are problem people, aren't there? Chuck Swindoll said in his autobiography, or his biography of Moses, autobiography, Chuck Swindoll said in his biography of Moses, that whenever God is blessing his people, there's always going to be a mixed multitude because even worldly people can see what's going on. They kind of want to be a part of it, but they don't want to be a part to follow the Lord. They just want to be a part to get their part out of it. And so there are problem people. There's going to be false teachers. Verse 9. Avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law for the unprofitable and worthless. It's kind of where he started, Titus 1.14, not paying attention to Jewish myths. You find somebody, oh yeah, the Bible says this, but then they got this myth. Yeah, there's the, you know, there actually there's the gospel of, of uh, whatever, you know, they got this lost gospel they found. And how do you know the difference? It doesn't teach what the word of God says. That's why we call it false. There's writings between the scripture, and we call them pseudepigrapha, false writings. They're false. They don't match up with this. And so they're false. 
But false teachers don't just bring in that which is just blatantly false. They like to give a little tooth mixed in there. And so you may have listened to Joel Osteen in the past. First warning that uh, he, he's not a good guy is he's got his big own initial right on the front of his pulpit, the big O, not a cross. And you listen a while, and I've, I've, listened, I've talked to Christians that are offended why I said, well, that guy's a false teacher. He's lying. Oh, oh, pastor, he's such a good guy. I mean, look, he's got such a big church. Well, Jesus said about the road to destruction that it's broad and most people going that way. So just because a lot of people are buying into it doesn't mean it's true. He even starts out good. He says, you're about to receive the engrafted word of God. Then he jumps into the mind of Joel. He's not exposing the word. He pulls a few stories out here and there, but the message is always, you can do it. You can do it. Just think positive. You can do it. And people go, yeah, God wants me to be rich, so I'm going to be rich. I can do it. Well, that's false. God wants you to be a servant. He wants you to take up your cross and follow him. Where where was he going? To the place of sacrifice. We're not going to get our best life now. Our best life is when we're glorified and with him for all eternity. Now is the opportunity to demonstrate faithfulness, but now is going to be trial. Now we're going to be tested. But there's Jewish myths and there's commandments of men. That's just legalism. The Judaizers showed up and said, oh, that's good. You've received Christ, but you know, you really want to be perfect. You need to be circumcised. You need to start keeping the Sabbath. And they laid it on people, didn't they? Always looking one-upmanship, the haves versus the have-nots. And they love really ministering to brand new believers because new believers, they've come out of a life of sin. They're so thankful Jesus saved them. They just want to please them. And there's the legalist to lay some burdens on them. No, 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 you need to jump a little higher. Or the churches in our modern day, they say, oh, well, you've received Christ, that's good. But you need to be baptized by our church. And they try to separate them from the word of God into their extra biblical values and teachings. He said, no, no, don't pay attention to them. In fact, there in verse 9, he said, avoid. That means step around. You don't even mess with it. Don't even touch it. You just, you see it, you go around it. You point it out. Don't step in that, right? Like when a stray dog comes to your yard and your kids are out there playing. Whoa, whoa, don't step in that. Avoid it. Some Christians think they're so sound and so mature in their faith, they can just study all kinds of false doctrine. The Bible never tells you to study the false. A lot of people say, well, I want to study what's false so I'll know what's true. No, no. You study what's true, and you know it's true. So when the false shows up, you go, that's false. Why? It doesn't agree with this. We're to be intimately acquainted with the truth. So we're protected from that which is false. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled, unbelieving, nothing is pure. They don't, they cut the scripture up and they twist it around. That's not a problem to them. And they like to make the scripture very difficult. So, so you have to come to them, and only you coming to them, then you'll be able to have the truth because they hold the keys of knowledge and Gnostic. No, no, no. The Bible says you have need that no one teach you because as a born-again Christian, you have the word of God, 1 John chapter 2, verse 27. You have the anointing you receive of the Holy Spirit. Doesn't mean that we're not, we don't need pastors and teachers, but when they begin to tell you, oh, you gotta have me, you say, oh, wrong church, I'll see you. 
No, because you have the Holy Spirit, and your spirit's going to bear witness with their spirit that what you're hearing is the truth of the Word of God. God's giving you that protection. But not only are problem pe- uh, people false teachers, but also factious wolves. That's what Paul called them in Acts 20. From your own group, wolves are going to rise up. Men that you know. And you thought they were really believers and they were just here with us and all of a sudden they're trying to call out a little herd for themselves. Bible says in Proverbs 6.16, there are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who uttered lies, and here's the worst one, the one who spreads strife among brothers. God hates that. He hates it. Just dropping a little word here and there just to you know, get people on your side. That's a factious spirit. MacArthur says the word factious from heretikos, which is heretic. That's the word heretic comes from. And when we think of heresy, sometimes we think of false doctrine. Well, it's not necessarily just false doctrine. It's a broader net than that. It's anybody that wants to promote a factious spirit, a party spirit. The original word simply meant to choose, but eventually came a term to signify the placing of self-willed opinions above the truth, refusing even to consider views contrary to one's own. The factious person will not submit to the word or to godly leaders in the church. He's a law unto himself and has no concern for spiritual truth or unity. He becomes the authority or she becomes the authority. Paul's casting a broader net here, which includes anyone in the church who is divisive and disruptive. Why is this so important? Because unity in divine truth and in spiritual fellowship is imperative for effective evangelism. You're not going to have a church as effective evangelism if there's all this fussing going on in the church and all this party spirit. He was always dealing with that, wasn't he? There's all kinds of examples. They're endless. Let me just hit a couple. Something can become an area of faction is the study of end times, right? Because the Lord doesn't say what date he's coming back. In fact, he says, if somebody's saying this for certain date, you know they're not telling you the truth because no man knows the day of the hour. But you can take good doctrine and make it a, a problem of factious because you're trying to divide. So everybody that doesn't agree with you, whether you're pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, or a-trib, you've got to have everybody only that just agrees with you. So something that can be very good becomes factious. Maybe it's a translation of Scripture. Maybe you don't know this, but you know there are people that won't even talk to you if they think you use another translation of Scripture other than the King James. King James only people. Nothing wrong with the King James. It's a good translation. But so is the New American Standard Bible. But they'll tell you, oh, do you know you're reading a lie? It's an emotional argument. It's factious, and it hurts people, and people have used it to pull flock out of the church, and they never grow. They become stagnant in their legalism and just dead and discouraged because somebody thought, we need to tell you this information so you're no longer the have-nots. You can be in the inside track. But it's not just those things. There are so many other things. It could be homeschool. Churches have been ripped apart because, well, you don't want to be putting your kids in the devil's Sunday school every day, do you? 
Well, listen, if you have the equipment in yourself, the giftedness, and you feel God leading you to homeschool, by all means, do homeschool. But that's not a test of fellowship, and it shouldn't be. You find some churches that are homeschool only. You'll find some churches that are Christian school only. I was a youth pastor in a church that had a Christian school. And so you had this haves and have-nots, and the people didn't want their children to be around unsafe people. And so when I, as a youth pastor, started bringing kids from the public school in, ooh, there was pushback on the parents, and guess what? There was pushback from their students too. You know, that church is dead as a doornail today because that school began to wag the tail of the dog, and what was an evangelistic church became an us-for-no-more church, and now it's dead. We don't want those unsaved kids around us. I remember we had a, my brother-in-law had come to Christ. He was a senior in high school, and I was his youth pastor. And uh, so senior class in the Christian school was taking a trip to the Bahamas. It wasn't a missions trip. It was a fun trip, senior class trip. Kind of nice, huh? Do you wish two seniors were going to the Bahamas this year? I went. I really enjoyed it. They were kind of flatlanders. They didn't like it so much because the water in the sea is so salty. Hmm. Anyway, I thought, well, wouldn't it be nice if my brother-in-law could go? Oh, you saw a fight from the kids and from the parents? He's in the public school. Okay, all right. Came time for the senior banquet. We don't want you going to the prom because that's bad. You can't go to the prom. I said, well, can, can Russell come to the banquet for the Christian school then? Well, no, we can't allow that. He's in the public school. Why don't you just have a banquet for all the Christian kids that aren't in the Christian school? Yeah, we'll go to McDonald's and light a cupcake. That's what happens to churches when there's faction. When it becomes us, us four, no more. When our thing is the only thing where it's not biblical, it's usually emotional. It can be over good things. We've seen it happen so often with young men when it comes to reformed theology. And they go around with a little badge. They say, are you reformed? I'm reformed. Are you reformed? I'm reformed. A lot of Christians don't even know what they're talking about. Well, you used to be an alcoholic? What? <laughs> but it's a problem of arrogance. And they got all, they've got God and salvation all figured out. Isn't that good? And so they believe that God sends people to heaven because obviously the Bible is very clear. He's chosen people. If only the chosen people go to heaven, then obviously the other people are chosen to go to hell. The problem is the Bible doesn't teach that. I call it the little Jack Horner syndrome. You know that poem, little Jack Horner sat in his corner eating his Christmas pie. He stuck in his thumb and he pulled out a plum and he said, what a good boy am I. No, first of all, Jack, you're not good because you're in the corner. And that's what people do. They get factious. They get off in their little corner and try to get everybody involved. And they told us in seminar, I believe it was Dr. Pettigrew, if you find something new in Scripture, keep it to yourself. Because you're either going to look stupid because you've just discovered what's been there the whole time, or it's apostasy. Nothing new under the sun. But they get so proud and arid because, oh, look what I found. I'm reformed. We've had the same thing with Arminianism. We had a girl here several years ago. We were having this revival of college kids coming to Christ, and she came from a church in Wyoming that was very strong in Arminian theology. And so it was her purpose in life to make sure that all Christians had no security in their salvation. 
well, that's a high and mighty objective. I don't, I don't know how that would be an encouragement to the saints, but that was her deal. And we dealt with her in love. I've always wondered why it could be sign gifts, you know. We need to, to teach everybody they have to be just like me. And we can only be comfortable around people just like me. Listen, God saved people from a variety of doctrine, from a variety of backgrounds and races. And, and we can have disagreements on Scripture. It gets to be factious when everybody's got to agree with us. And we don't care who it hurts. Now it's not love anymore. 1 Corinthians 4, 6. I love this. Paul dealing with people that have factions going on. He says, now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one, other, of one against the other. For who regards you as superior? What do you have you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as that you did not receive it? Like little Jack Horner. He didn't put the plum in the pie. His mom put it in there. And he probably didn't deserve pie yet. But here he is gloating over the fact that look what I discovered. Paul said, what do you have that you haven't received? Don't be arrogant. Well, if there's so much problem in the church, wouldn't it just be better if we just kind of try to figure it out ourselves? No, no, no. What is church? Just waiting rooms for heaven? Is it just like little activity centers? There's a church like that in Revelation. Revelation chapter 3 verse 1. The book, the, the church of Sardis. And God looked at him and said, You have a testimony that there's life, but you are dead. That's what he said. They're just activity centers. I think there are some churches and some denominations that are so given to their little way and form of doing things. And I have an acrostic for them. Little, little polity statement form, and they have become churches that are striving for mediocrity through extreme busyness. Just got to have something for people to do all the time. Busy, busy, busy. But never taking the time to back up and say, God, this is your church. What do you want us to do? But for those that would be courageous soldiers... They see the church as outposts for glory, as a place to be a light to those that are dark. And they each take their responsibility to see their friends come to know Jesus Christ. For those kind of people that desire to be on the front lines, we need the church. We need the encouragement. We need that powerful fellowship, verses 12 through 15. There in verse 12, even the apostle Paul needed encouragement. He said, when I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, I'm going to send you a replacement. Make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. In the church, there are people in your Christian life that are just those special close friends. It's not about the building. And as much as we enjoy the singing in our worship together, it's not just about that. We each one need those close friends that will be our strength. That's who Titus was to Paul. And you think, wow, it's amazing that Paul needed encouragement. I'll tell you, it encourages me to know that Paul needed encouragement. That somehow he didn't get above there and now he didn't need encouragement. He was still struggling. 
he struggled with the thought of getting another beating. Do you know that? See, his way of planting churches is you, you go to a church, find the Jewish community, whether it's a place of prayer, they have enough men to be a synagogue. You share the gospel there. Some people get saved. And then you go out and you preach to the Gentiles, and they get saved, and all the Jews hate you. And they find a reason to put you in jail, so you're beaten and sometimes stoned, but kicked out of town. Then you go to the next town, do the same thing all over again. He's coming into Corinth, and we don't hear Paul saying, but the Bible says there in Acts that God sent an angel to show up and tell Paul, listen, Paul, this time, nobody's going to lay a finger on you. You just go preach. God knew he needed that break. Now, tradition tells us that it's possible after Nicopolis, this rest, that he's arrested there and taken for his last imprisonment where he's going to give his life for the Lord Jesus. I don't know if Paul knew that. Like he did, he was going to be bound when he went to Jerusalem or he just knew that he had a need. He needed encouragement, so he called for Titus. In chapter 1, verse 4, it says, he's my own son in a common faith. My own son. Do you have those people that are encouragement to you? Listen, you all are encouragement to me on Sunday morning when you come and I see your face as your shepherd. Later, I'll say to Don or one of the guys, hey, did you see so-and-so there? Because if I didn't preach, I'm not looking at you, right? I'm down here looking at the teacher. And so, oh, yeah, they were sitting right over here. I missed them. I know I can't talk to every one of you. I'm not going to have a close relationship with every one of you, but every one of us need to have close relationships, If you're going to be on the front lines, you're going to need to be encouraged. Even the Apostle Paul needed encouragement. Verses 13 and 14. We need the church so that we have the opportunities. This is where you learn how to minister. And he says to to Titus, Diligently help Zenos the Lord and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. Titus, you take responsibility. Those those well-known Christian teachers are coming by there, you make sure they have everything they need. He was training Titus as his own son in the faith. Take responsibility and give. My big brother, Pastor Howe, has been that example for me as long as I can remember. He's never had short arms when it comes to the check. You've seen those guys with alligator arms? Oh, I'll get it, I'll get it. No, you gotta be fast. And now I'm faster in Lynn. Soon he does, he one-ups me. The waitress comes, he makes his order, and he says, I'll take the check. Hey, that's not fair. Well, she's smart. But the thing that Lynn has always done, he's always looked for opportunities to give. And he says, Titus, you keep doing that. They're going to come by. You make sure they have everything. But don't just stop there. The next verse, he says, our people must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. The church is the place of ministry where you learn to bear one another's burdens. We learn to rejoice with them that rejoice and to weep with them that weep. We have a need. What do we do? We respond and we give. John said that. He said, my little children, let's not just have a good doctrinal statement about loving one another, but let us love in deed and in truth that's where love can be felt that's where love is demonstrated the place of that ministry the primary place is the local church and verse 15 for the joy for the joy all who are with me greet you greet those who love us in the faith 
Grace be with you all. Over the years, people have called back, and it's so precious. They'll send a card, especially those people that have come to Christ in the ministry here. They say, I'm just so thankful for that church there. Pastor, you're such a blessing because I heard the gospel from you, or so-and-so shared the gospel. I'm so thankful. And I write back with this verse, 1 Thessalonians 2.19. For who is our hope or joy of crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus that is coming? For you are our glory and joy. Sometimes my friends will say, you know, Paul, when I think back about all the junk we've been through, about this little faction here and that problem there and that when people ripped a hole in the church there and things people have said about you and I don't know how you do it. Well, first of all, I don't think about those things. If you remind me, I can go back and I can tell you the story, but... That's not where my mind is. That's where my heart rests. My heart rests in the joy of seeing people come to know Jesus Christ. And I never get over that. My buddy Fred called me yesterday. He said, Paul, I just got to tell you, I know you want to hear. I've been ministering to my buddy. And he came to know Christ as a Savior. Oh, man, we just had a party on the phone. There's nothing like that miracle. That's where Paul derived his joy. Because one day he knew he was going to meet those people at the throne. God has given us that precious seed. He's given us that opportunity to be an outpost. And then he said in Luke 19, in that example, occupy till I come. Not sitting on the premises, but reflecting the gospel and the glory of Jesus Christ until he comes. And Paul says, grace be with you all. The power and the desire to fulfill the purpose for which God saved you. That's our joy. Father, we thank you for your love. Lord, I know the true church brings joy to your heart. And Lord, I am so thankful for this precious body. Lord, give us the sensitivity to be protecting it and loving it and never getting used to it because, God, this is your grace, this is your glory. And, Lord, we ask that you just continue to build this church, that until you call us home, we might see a harvest of souls. We rejoice in the opportunity because what we desire is, Lord, the planting of the Lord, oaks of righteousness that your name might be praised, and we'll give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.